how are you going about identifying uh, market needs and, and, and enough so that you're ready to you know develop a new product for it? We listen to our existing customers. So, for example, uh, one out of four of our existing customers have a need for a product like this. Um, so then, you know, that's great. We already have X many customers ready to sell a product to. Um, but then we also look at, um, you know, traditional secondary research. How many uh, of these systems are out there? How many air conditioners are out there? Uh, we assess the competition. Um, you know, we buy all their products. We tear them apart. We use their app. Um, we kind of determine, can we compete with this or not? All right. So, you know, um, so what's your philosophy on, uh, growth when it comes to like, uh, growing Misa or similar companies? Um, good question. Um, I usually reduce it down to like the bare bones um, and trying to keep it very simple because as, as we've grown, things get very complex. We have more products, more markets, more marketing channels. Um, and so it's really um, trying to keep things as simple as possible and focusing on one thing at a time and one new thing at a time. So all throughout, we've kind of focused on you know, one marketing channel at a time and try to do really well and either fail fast in that channel and fail hard <laughs> or succeed and then succeed, kind of create a playbook around it, um, make sure that we know how to execute and then move to the next one. And so it, I kind of look at it as uh, layering a bunch of curves on top of each other, like the typical S curve. Um, you know, you Initially, you don't get many results. Then quickly, you'll figure out how to get results and you get a lot quickly, but then it kind of, you see diminishing returns. And so that's at a micro level in each of the channels or tactics. But then if you're able to stack a bunch of those curves on top of each other, uh, you can see overall growth um, continue to accelerate. Well, that's really an interesting point. You say like, you know, about simplifying and focusing on uh, one existing thing at a time and one new thing at a time. So if you have to narrow down into a bit more specifics, like especially related to Misa, um, what would be those like tactics or channels or ideas that you would categorize into like that strategy of existing and new and how you refined it as you went? Yeah, um, so... And kind of like on the philosophy, everything really starts with understanding the business really well. So for Misa, um, you know, we sell smart thermostats to people who have HVAC systems that are more niche, um, I would say. You know, it's not the majority of people in North America are not even going to be able to purchase one of our products. And so knowing that actually rules out a lot of strategies right off the bat, because, um, for example, you know, ma any mass market tactics, uh, are immediately uh, less effective because we have so many people that won't be able to use our product. So that in itself informs which channels are more viable than others. And so for us, we started off with Google ads. Um, and that's because it's such a very specific solution to people with a specific problem. They would be searching for it because there was no nobody out there. So that's where we, we first started. Then Google ads, you immediately start to think about SEO and organic search which is the free version of Google ads, I call it. Um, so we invested there. 
Um, and the next layer we added was Facebook ads. Um, and then we added Amazon. And, you know, nowadays, for example, we've really scaled up our Facebook. We're spending uh, close to, or last year we spent, we spent over half a million dollars on Facebook, but we're exploring interest, for example, or Reddit uh, ads we've tried multiple times over the last couple of years. And that's another thing we, you know, we try things and sometimes they fail, but if they fail, that doesn't mean we rule them out forever. Uh, we try again in a year's time because maybe we've matured to a point where it makes sense or the platform matured to where it makes sense. And um, so was this a trial and error approach based on your uh, market knowledge or were there like customer interviews or any focus groups involved uh, trying to figure that step-by-step -step process? Um, lots of unintentional customer interviews in the early days. And so what I mean by that is um, we were all we had live chat on our website uh, even before we we actually shipped any product we were taking pre-orders and we had a live chat widget on our website and i was on it all the time talking to customers other people from the team were talking to customers all the time and when you do that you're inadvertently doing customer interviews because you know you're not selling the product yet but they're showing interest and you know what questions they ask um, but then even when we did launch the product um, i spent a couple of weeks where I did about 40 hours worth of customer phone calls. Um, just initially out of fear uh, from hopefully they like the product, but then as I was talking to people, I actually learned more about them, who they were, what, what matters to them, how they find products and things like that. So it's uh, in the early days, talking to customers is the, I would say the single most effective strategy. I agree completely there. I found the same just in, in uh, clients that we've had really successful campaigns like um, Anthony Insurance, for example, uh, literally picking up the phone book, talking with 30 people, all of which everybody has insurance. So it's it's kind of an easy, uh, easy way to find people. And uh, the data starts repeating after 20 conversations. And then, you know, you've got some insights you can rest on. So it's uh, yeah. it, it and you know, uh, an academic uh, viewpoint would say that that's not a big, uh, big enough sample size, but it, it is kind of amazing how you can find really, um, you know, hardcore insights uh, in, in, in such a short amount of time when you're doing what, what you were doing. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned like 20 people and I've found the same thing, like anywhere between 10 and 20, any time I've done any talking to customers, that's when it starts to repeat because all you need to really, you know, you're not trying to op do minute optimizations you're trying to uncover the the larger patterns at play so you know 10 to 20 is enough to start to see those i find usually mm -hmm. so what would be the difference like you know between um you know at that day like on your information of like talking with customers and let's say today uh, what would be the change from there um the the change is that any it's it's a lot harder to test uh, rapidly and test without consequences, I guess. So where we are now on multi-channels um, in two countries, multiple products, we have you know over a hundred thousand people using our products. We can't um, just try stuff and put it out there because now we also have a brand established and things need to be more consistent. So there's a lot more um, ripple effects of things that we do that have an impact on operations or an impact on our customer support team or 
um, you know, where we used to take a lot of liberties with our messaging and things like that. All of that has to be much more, you know, in control now. And, and they're more, you know, we are now a team of 85 people at Mesa. Um, so there's a lot more even internal, you know, change management to, to deal with. So we're definitely less nimble, but we're trying to still have an experimentation mindset. And um, really what it takes is just being intentional about it and not hope that it happens. So these days, are you more guided by, say, campaign results, sales results? Is, is that more kind of where you're taking your, your insights or are you doing ongoing qualitative research? Um, I hadn't done any qualitative research for the longest time. So earlier this year, actually, I, uh, we, what we did do was establish a, a customer VIP panel. Um, so we used our email list and we got about a thousand people to sign up for that. Um, and so we've sent them monthly surveys. Um, they can be very small or a bit more in depth and we've seen great response rates, but then I've also, you know, I, I kind of was feeling more and more disconnected from our users. So started this year, I just sent out an email. Hey, I'd love to chat with you. Uh, and again, I had about 20 people that I had a 30 to 45 minute conversation with, and it was great to just reconfirm some of the things I was thinking, but also uncover some new things. So, um, I'm very happy I did that and I kind of encourage anybody on my team to try and do the same thing and, and talk to people. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a mix of both, but campaign results definitely, uh, play a factor and that's getting a bit harder with all of the, the attribution changes lately with iOS privacy. Um, so yeah, we're back to basics in a lot of ways as well. Hmm. And in terms of how are you, how are you identifying like I know your latest product um, is it the air conditioning right is sort of the latest yeah. uh, so how are how are you going about identifying uh, market needs and, and and enough so that you're ready to you know develop a new product for it yeah um, that's a, has been trial and error as well over the years for us but in general I would say um, we listen to our existing customers so for example. Uh, one out of four of our existing customers have a need for a product like this. Um, so then, you know, that's great. We already have X many customers ready to sell a product to. Um, but then we also look at, um, you know, traditional secondary research. How many uh, of these systems are out there? How many air conditioners are out there? Uh, we assess the competition. Um, you know, we buy all their products. We tear them apart. We use their app. Um, we kind of determine, can we compete with this or not? And so, for example, to date, we've stayed away from competing with Nest or Ecobee because, you know, two behemoths in the industry, we feel like we're not ready yet to compete with them. So we've, you know, intentionally stayed away from that, stayed in the more niche markets. Um, and the, a big one we use as well is customer reviews. So we, I, I'm pretty sure we've read every single customer review on Amazon of our competitors. Um, so that's something we do ahead of building a product. Uh, and what that, it really helps with understanding the, the problems that any product is solving and how closely that's related to what we're currently doing at Misa. But then it also shows where people are getting annoyed with their competition and where we could potentially have an edge on them. Um, and so that's how we um, kind of arrive at, okay, you know, this makes sense. And then we, we do a technical assessment and determine 
how difficult would it be to build this product? And typically we're a bit naive there, uh, but I think you need to be naive in a startup uh, to actually even get started <laughs> and do things. I agree. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not renowned for seeing barriers very well. Uh, sort of deal with them as they come, uh, which if you can, if you can stay upright and above ground, then I think, that, I think that's a winning, uh, it's a good trait to have. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. We're actually uh, posting today a little snippet from the interview with Josh talking about the Slack channel and the customer reviews and thought that was really cool. But something that didn't come out of uh, what he had shared was that you were using that to understand competitors as well. So yeah. that's that's really interesting. I never thought of that to, to uh, look at reviews to, you know, see what, what they're doing good, what they're doing bad and, and use that to develop new new products. That's smart. Um, just a question I have around, uh, we'll kind of move on here to kind of more of a marketing, uh, discussion. Um, there's, there's a couple of things that, uh, I think Zach mentioned about, I don't know if you can remember, but like, there was like a, a growth framework or something that you brought back in the early days that really helped them, uh, kind of simplify the, the, the future. Can you recall what, 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 uh, what that involved? Um, not sure. Well, it was, um, it was a Frankenstein of a lot of growth concepts. Um, I, I went very, very deep into just the growth marketing um, side of things. And, you know, a book, for example, that we use a lot from was Hacking Growth. Um, and so the, the framework really is um, lever starting with a brainstorm and ideas uh, and as many as possible and then ranking them in a very simple way because you can take ranking ideas to a science as well and then you spend weeks trying to rank ideas rather than try them uh, and so we use the ice framework for ranking them so a uh, score of one out of ten on impact one out of ten on confidence that it will actually have that impact and then a one out of ten on ease of execution so uh, what the framework does is it favors easy ideas that are of relatively high impact because what you're not trying to do in the early days is take very big bets that either work or don't because you don't have time uh, to take a big bet and fail and then try again. So it, it intentionally favors the relatively small, easy wins and then stack them on top of each other. And so um, that's what we used and uh, what we did. We treated everything, every idea as an experiment. So we had a big, um, it was just a Google document really with experiment IDs. And so for every experiment we wrote up, what is the hypothesis? So for example, um, if we target people who like iOS on Facebook, we're going to see a 10% increase in click-through rate or something like that. Um, and then we did the experiment design. So what's our control group? What's our test? And um, how long are we going to run this experiment for? And then we did a retrospective look back were we right or were we wrong? And the idea was more so to, you know, move through all of these experiments quickly and try a lot of things, but don't try them willy nilly. Do things based on a solid hypothesis. You know, I, I really believe in, as definitely as a marketer, if you have a solid understanding of user psychology, um, you know, some of my favorite books are behavioral economics and psychology because you can, it allows you to create really, really good hypotheses that are more likely to actually result in something. And so mm -hmm. uh, we use that as the basis to run a lot of ideas through. 
especially for the first year or so. Mm -hmm. And the other question was just on uh, uh, SEO. Um, can you talk about just how you guys have been successful with uh, with organic um, Google AdWords, as you said, or the free Google AdWords? Yeah, um, extremely targeted uh, SEO efforts. So um, essentially, it was trying a lot of long tail keywords with phrases that make sense for us that are sort of uh, lower in the funnel. Um, and just, you know, using the tools at hand like um, Ahrefs and uh, we use Moz as well at times, but they're, I find them useful directionally, but not from a, you know, it's not gonna give you any answers as to what content to develop. Um, so it was really doing a lot of keyword research through Google and then actually just being somebody who is searching. So searching for those keywords, am I getting an answer to my question? Yes or no? And then uh, if the answer was no, then we would just write a blog post about it. Um, we didn't invest too much effort or time or design resources into each blog post. We would just get it out. If it starts ranking on page one, then we invest in design. So, you know, one, one example that we found that is still to date or the number one blog post for us bringing in traffic is um, people were searching the best thermostat for multiple zones in your home. Uh, and I remember the top two articles were help desk articles from Nest uh, and that were not even re relevant to the, the question at hand. So we wrote a blog post. This is the best thermostat for multiple zones. And uh, that's been our, our top post for three, three years now. So uh, I find for us, SEO is really successful by being extremely targeted with long tail keywords. We're not trying to compete on smart thermostat. We're trying to compete on smart thermostat for baseboard heaters or anything like that. Um, and then I find all you need really is four to five wins to start seeing the, the impact of your efforts in SEO uh, on a meaningful level in the business. So, um, you know, today, like in your SEO keywords mix, what do you feel is the ratio that drives like uh, the biggest amount of uh, leads to you? Um, the ratio from like for SEO and, and paid or within SEO organic specifically? Yeah, like within SEO, you know, like, you know, you, you would have, let's say, a set of uh, X uh, keywords, but out of X, only really like one tenth generate the maximum amount of oh, gotcha. leads for yeah. you. Um, yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure on a keyword level, uh, but on a uh, individual page or, or post level, uh, there, there are like 10 that are really driving all of the volume and we have over 50. Um, so it's definitely, I think it, it'll probably stay, get close to that 2080 rule um, where 20% of the content you put out there is going to drive 80% of your results. And that's, that's why we kind of put it out there and only invest further in it when it's bringing in results because otherwise it, it would take too long. Right. And how do you see that like going from here with your SEO? Um, from here, I think, well, we, we just launched a new product. So uh, this year, all of our efforts have been on doing the exact same thing over again for that specific product. And we're actually, uh, I'm, I'm very happy because three of those posts are now in our top 10 already. Um, so we're 
we did some, it's really nice to see that whatever framework and strategy we used three years ago is still working today. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I know like there's different schools of thought out there of like, uh, you know, uh, posting uh, two blog posts a week, uh, one a week or and when you say 50, that's like a lower number than I was, than I was expecting, considering like how long you've, you guys have been around. Um, so what, what's your philosophy on that in terms of like the amount of content you're, 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 you're putting out there? Um, it's, it has to serve a purpose. I don't think, uh, it, it matters at all. You know, if you, if you can hit two posts a week where the content is actually of high quality and somebody out there needs that content, that would be great. Um, but I find it's it's really hard to find those exact topics as well because ultimately, if you if you think about how you use Google, you typically use it either you have a question you need an answer for, uh, it's from some kind of entertaining purpose, or you're looking for products or solutions. But it, it's one of those four things typically, and so it's really all about figuring out the questions people are asking that are relevant to your product, and then creating content for that. And I find that. Is, is not an easy task because, you know, the first five or 10 are easy, uh, but then to keep it relevant and of high quality um, is, is more challenging. So we've, and we've used tools like um, answerthepublic.com, for example, where you can just put in a topic and it spits out a bunch of questions people are actually Googling. Um, and it's just great for ideation. And um, does the platform Quora uh, play a role into it? Which one? Uh, uh, Quora, uh, Q-U-O-R-A. Um, yeah, we. it's definitely part of the ideation, kind of seeing what, what uh, people are asking. Yeah, um, we've, uh, we've explored Quora in the past, actually, with ads or even an organic strategy where we would try to ask questions and also answer them, but that didn't really work out. <laughs> Like your qualitative research, would you have drawn, uh, you know, questions from that as, as well? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So one one of the insights, for example, from talking to customers, is that a lot of people use our product in a secondary home or vacation home, um, and as well as Airbnbs. So we've done some posts specifically targeted to those personas. So you know, um, the best smart home upgrades for your vacation home or how to manage energy in your Airbnb or things like that. Um, so yeah, definitely. And, and final question on that is like, uh, you know, this Riverside tool we're using, I, I was trying to figure out how, how do I get three unique uh, video channels in zoom? Um, Cause it didn't seem to be able to do it. And uh, this, there's a video came up uh, first thing I clicked and it's Riverside saying, here's how you, here's a tool that allows you to get three different video channels. Uh, and now we're a customer. So I, I'm curious about like if you're using video content or is it all like static blog content? Uh, like what, how does that work? Mostly static blog content. Um, yeah, we we don't really have the, the bandwidth to do video content um, that quickly or because a lot of it that you would create also fails <laughs> and doesn't, you know, get any eyeballs. So we try to, you know, our video content is mainly um, or our video capabilities are mainly focused towards where we put a lot of money. So uh, Facebook ads, for example, or um, Instagram, well, both the same. Gotcha. So we're, we're about halfway through. Um, 
One of the overall questions we have is kind of like if you were, you know, speaking with a business that is, uh, you know, like like Misa was, you know, starting out in that in that first couple of years, um, trying to get traction, trying to find customers, trying to survive, I guess, and or or maybe they're surviving, but they're trying to scale. Like I, I something that we hear a lot is um, you know, companies come to us and they're they're not sure kind of how to where to start when it comes to putting a marketing program in place. And, you know, there's a certain amount where we can help us as an outside partner. But there's also, of course, needs to be, you know, uh, an internal uh, leadership there and, and, and sort of roadmap that, that they are implementing day in and day out. Um, so I, I'm just curious, like, what, what would be the um, starting point for a company looking to put a formal marketing pipeline in place? And, and then how do they how do they build that? What, what would be the fundamentals there? Um. The, the first thing that jumps to my mind is to throw out any preconceived notions of what the marketing program should look like. Um, I think in the early days, trying to copy companies that you like or that you see, and for example, saying, well, we need to be on Facebook and on this, and we need to do this, and we need to do that, is really putting your eggs in too many baskets, um, and it's going to dilute all of the efforts. Because in the very early days, it's very... I can't stress enough how important it is to just focus on one or two things and get them right and then add everything else. And so I, I often see people, yeah, but company so-and-so does five organic social posts a day or whatever it may be. Uh, we have to do that. Well, the answer is no, you don't really. You have to do whatever works for you. Um, and so that that mindset calibration, I'll call it, at the start is is absolutely crucial but then it, it goes to again you know understanding your customers how do they purchase um for us it was a lot of early adopters they were very techy so they go to google so that's where we started and then you can add everything else later uh, but it's really finding the the beachhead where you're going to start uh, with your marketing program and that is by far the most important thing and how has your like focus between like acquisition and awareness uh, like evolved over the years? Yeah, I w this year is uh, where we're really starting to invest more in even just general brand awareness. So that's you know it, it took us three years or so to get to that point where we're now starting to invest in higher level brand awareness, where we're not going directly for the sale or for the product um, and. I think this is the right timing because there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there uh, and it's it's very inefficient to move away from that too quickly. So now uh, we're actually going to run our first TV ad this year in the fall. <laughs> but even that we're doing in a very uh, tactical and controlled way. We're only going to do it in Quebec City, for example, and then compare results with Montreal. Okay. And, uh, yeah, like, uh, and, you know, uh, when you say like, uh, this, uh, change in, uh, focus, like in this year awareness, we also uh, mentioned about like a heavy spending on Facebook earlier. So like, let's say if we were to pick Facebook and would you say that there is a difference between acquisition and awareness when you approach, let's say, particularly Facebook? Yeah. Um, so we, we have like four funnel stages, I would say, uh, especially when we're looking at Facebook. Um, so lowest of the funnel is retention. So we do run Facebook ads to existing customers because we know uh, actually about 
25 to 30% of our annual sales are from return customers. Um, so we do run Facebook ads to them. That's very minimal budget, but it does have a high return. Um, one step up is remarketing. Um, so anybody, you know, we used to be more granular with add to cart versus viewed product, but now after iOS changes, we're just lumping everything together to maximize our audience size in one remarketing uh, bucket. And then we have what we call acquisition, which is to people who haven't heard from us, uh, so that cold audiences. Uh, but this year we're also doing now one level up, which is just general brand awareness. Um, and aside from the brand awareness campaign in Facebook, everything else is optimizing for conversions. So even at the acquisition level uh, to cold audiences, we were optimizing for conversions and purchases. Now with awareness, we're going more for clicks and traffic and really to try and get people to engage with us and know us, and then we'll hit them later. So any, any other questions on that, Vaish? No, uh, that's great. No, that's a, that's a very fascinating like a uh, distinction in terms of like how you can just uh, really look at it uh, like from an acquisition and like an awareness perspective, even on channels like Facebook, you know, it's, it's easier to relate it when it comes to like Google because you have the keywords, you know, the search intent and you can uh, tailor it based on that. But when you go to channels like Facebook where you don't know or you don't have any search intent, but uh, it's a very interesting approach to like just how you can tailor your campaign on channels like that and yet be more focused in the beginning and then scale up as you go forward. And can you talk about the, the brand uh, side of things? You know, that, that's something that we find, um, you know, in certain industries, we have to spend more time explaining the importance of a brand and, uh, and, and then, you know, trying to explain how that pays off uh, in, in the future. Um, can you talk about that in terms of just your, your philosophy on, on brand and, and how you've guided uh, Mises brand to date? Yeah. Um, brand is, uh, it, it's interesting in all, I think in all aspects, you know, internally or even externally, when we talk to, I, I think everybody has a slightly definition of what brand means. Um, even mm -hmm. if you kind of think you're always aligned, but it is very, uh, subjective in a way to, to me, brand is, um, it's kind of similar companies or organizations are similar to people. And so when you meet somebody somewhere at the party or networking event, when you go home, what do you think about that person? How would you describe that person to somebody else? And that's kind of how I think of brand. And so if you extrapolate that analogy, um, the key things are all the majority of interactions. So not, I don't think every interaction has to be 100% on brand, but the majority of them should be. And, um, by interaction, I mean anything from first website visit to, you know, the checkout process to receiving the product, to talking to our customer support team. All of those are very important touch points that kind of define the personality of our brand as somebody perceives it. Um, and so, uh, very early on, we, we did some secondary research into other players in the market, even Ecobee and the others. And, you know, we're, we're selling thermostats, which is is inherently not the sexiest topic in the world. So we decided to make our brand more friendly and approachable and talk about, you know, we use emojis and we use very friendly language and smiley faces and we call our customers and leads, we call them friend all the time. So we're, you know, we're trying to be that more friendly voice in a, 
the boring industry, really, the, you know, thermostats, HVAC, although it is smart home, which is great for the techies, uh, but we want to sell to more people than just the techies. So those were the beginnings. And then we've really um, put a lot of focus on our customer support, um, the unboxing, the first 30 minutes of the product are absolutely key for a brand. Um, so it's, I find often when I talk to people of a brand, they think it's, you know, the visual identity only, and that's kind of where it stops, but it is so much more um, than that. And every interaction is important, especially the first 10 or so. So what, beyond the kind of visual look and feel, you mentioned the unboxing, like any other key interactions that, that you've, you guys have focused on? I, I would say the one of the bigger ones at Misa is the first 30 minutes. So when you get that product, um, and you're installing it and you're playing around with it for the first time. Uh, from a product point of view, for example, our developers or product teams spend a disproportionate amount of time making sure the first 30 minutes is really, really great. Because if you get a bug in your, your app three, four months down the road from when you're using it, it's not really going to upset you. But if you hit a snag in the road right when you get the product, when you're super excited to set it up, it's going to have a a massive impact and we even see that from our customer reviews we find you know getting that first 30 minutes right leads to five star reviews getting it wrong leads to one star reviews so that's where i would say we have spent a lot of effort uh like you know uh when talking about uh, uh the uh you, you made a distinction of like bringing this year a lot more focus on brand so in terms of your messaging how would you make that distinction between um uh, going from a product to a brand focus? Yeah, um, I am very lucky that I hired some great people who are way better at that than I am because that's not my forte. Um, but we've, uh, yeah, so we have a head of marketing, Amy Fisher, who came over from uh, from tourism, actually, and she's, she's done wonders there in, in kind of helping us transition from we're the smart thermostat for people with baseboard heaters, which is very technical and uh, not very inspiring to um, have now we have messaging such as save money and the planet smart thermostats for electric heating so it's you know a lot more speaking more to the emotional side of things um, but also focusing on our unique value proposition yeah that, that's something we we always uh, try to uncover for clients is a self-actualization so you know there's the products there's the features uh, there's a strategic value in, in what they're purchasing, but, but underneath that is, is the self-actualization. And, you know, I guess that's what she um, uncovered there is save the planet. And if that's kind of uh, the common denominator for a lot of your customers and you, you're really getting into the deeper, deeper motivation between, you know, uh, in terms of why they picked you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, it's, it's interesting how we transitioned over the years. We started with extremely, you know, to the point, direct, you know, almost marketing features. And then we went to functional benefits and then we went to what the, they could actually do for you. And now we're kind of getting to that more emotional level. Um, and ultimately you, you need the whole mix, I would say. Uh, can't have one without the other. Although if you can only pick one in the early days, I would go functional over emotional because emotional is easy to get wrong if you don't understand your customers. Yeah, agreed. And and it also like you're doing TV now. So that's like kind of, uh, I would say your first probably like really, really rich touch point where you can really convey an emotion. 
So, and it, it takes time to get to that point where you can take that risk to, to produce it and, and, and get it out there from a media perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm learning now, uh, through the team, um, is, you know, you TV, even you can't just test with a little bit of budget. You kind of have to go at a certain scale to even see the, the results and impacts of it. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's coming at the right time for us. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's also not just uh media weight but it's uh frequency and then duration right uh it's not a, a 12-week campaign and and that's the test you know it's it's probably multiple at least a year you know or, or multiple years to really gauge it yeah um so another question we had here was around like what you view as your what like what do you view as your most important marketing touch point um yeah my team always makes fun of me because I'm always about the sale, but I guess the sale, um, the conversion. Uh, but yeah, I think that's just selfishly. The most impactful marketing touch point, I think, is that moment between um, people becoming aware of us and people actually wanting our product. And that step in between, there, there are a couple hurdles. One. One big one is, you know, will this product work in my home? And because compatibility is a big issue for us. Um, and, and so easing those worries, I think, is one of the more important steps in your funnel. And so that touch point that could live either on our Facebook ads, on our website or through email campaigns. But I would say that that message, whenever it gets to people, is one of the more important ones. I got you. Um, and in terms of like, say, your website, where is, is that a, a super important uh touch point for you guys oh yeah um yeah about uh what is it 40 percent of all of our revenue essentially flows through our own website uh, you know we've launched in best buy and home depot now but we're still uh, our website is the uh the major driver of revenue and um the, the great benefit is that we control the entire experience there so we we're listed on amazon amazon does great but we get one page on amazon with a bunch of restrictions put on us so um, it's really hard to tell a story and to get people, you know, develop that emotional connection with your brand so that they come back and buy again or tell their friends and family about you. So, yeah, from that point of view, I'd say the our website is the most more important marketing vehicle. Any sort of uh, key learnings on that or, or best practices that, that you apply to that website? Uh, reviews, reviews, reviews. <laughs> I think... Uh, yeah, we've we've spent a lot of time trying to get a lot of reviews on there and really try to leverage them everywhere because it's especially when you're talking uh, B2C and you're talking, you know, one to many, essentially having that your social proof really comes from how many reviews you have. It's not we haven't found the singular call outs to be super impactful. For example, so and so said this. We do use it and it helps. But if that's not paired with and 1500 other people gave it five stars um it kind of loses its its impact so reviews is definitely important and uh keeping it simple i think over the top over the years we've we use a fairly iterative approach where we add modules at a time or add single elements but the the downside of that is that it can become very cluttered because as you are working on the website to you it is still very straightforward and clear uh, because you're adding one thing at a time but but to somebody who comes to your website for the first time, it could be too much. And uh, so simplifying messaging, simplifying what you're communicating to the absolute 
most important messages is also key um, from an e-com point of view. And what's your, um, I, I know I talked a bit, a, a bit to Zach about this, talking about the choice to build an internal marketing team. Uh, he talked about just their responsiveness, uh, which uh, it was you know very impressive in terms of how quickly you know your internal team is able to move on opportunities and and get in market with stuff. Any any other thoughts on that in terms of uh, that choice to go internal? And and I I'd be curious also what your rationale is for when you pull in outside help in in what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the choice to go internal was really. Um, we wanted people to have a really deep understanding of our product and the industry and, and who we're for. And so, um, you know, that is possible with external partners, definitely. Um, but we kind of opted to just build that in-house and then move through all of the opportunities and experiments very quickly. And so, you know, we employ all of our people and we make try to make them feel safe and try to, you know, make them okay with failing. Like I really try to make um, trying things, failing and learning something that's really accepted and almost celebrated at the team. Um, and so that was an important factor in that. And, and just the speed of execution, we many times we've turned around campaigns in, in a week or two and, and you know, on a moment's notice and, and gotten a lot of results from it uh, by doing that. Um, but then when we use outside help is really when we don't have the expertise because we also don't really believe in trying to be the best at everything. Um, and so what we've done in the past, for example, is we used uh, Mute 6, an agency that was specialized in scaling up Facebook ads for uh, e-commerce. They're based in the US. So we used them for about a year and you know, we kind of outgrew them in a way um, where we saw a lot of great results initially, um, but then they didn't really understand or, or the nuances. So kind of my, my learning from that was the bigger the agency, the more you're just a, another client on the list and they don't really spend the time to actually understand you. So now we, we work with smaller agencies when they can really supplement their expertise. So for example, We've been working with this great agency in Quebec, MOPR, uh, and we've used them because none of us are from Quebec. None of us actually speak French, understand the culture. So we develop the overarching brand strategy uh, for North America and our tactics and, and campaigns. And then we work with them to tailor it to the local market. And we work with them to create, for example, the TV ad was created by them because they fully understand that market um, and it turned out amazing. So it's really to supplement our team with either market knowledge or platform knowledge. So, you know, some things we don't have experience with is web display and programmatic uh, display. So we've, we've worked with an agency there um, who have a lot of experience with that specifically. And then we always make sure that one person on our team is sort of like along for the ride and gets to learn a little bit more about it. We are uh, almost out of time here, but do you have any, uh, like a final question for Dan? Well, um, not, not so much like, I mean, uh, most of it is all covered, but just for circling back to like the website, you know, um, if you had to like share or for any brand touch point, like top three things, um, it could be related to look and feel or content or, you know, the format, 
what would be the three best um, uh, ideas or philosophy that you would share that uh, somebody can build from? Um, yeah, I would say copy over design. Um, copy is always going to move the needle more than design can. Not saying design is not important, um, just saying the words are more important than moving people. Um, the other one is um, test, testing web designs or landing pages is also very important and that can be qualitative. I think people resort to A-B testing all the time, uh, but A-B testing, you know, if I used to get this wrong in the beginning as well until I went to this conference in Austin uh, with like the top growth people in North America. And I learned that if you don't get a thousand conversions a month, your A-B testing from a statistical point of view is actually a waste of time because you could have false positives because you don't have enough data. And so a thousand conversions is a lot <laughs> in a month. A lot of companies don't have that. So I, I often see people doing A-B testing and, you know, 20 conversions on A and 24 on B. So therefore B is better, but yeah, um, qualitative research on the website is important. Uh, one, one tool that we use frequently is usability hub where you can essentially just upload images and get people what, you know, what is the first thing you see, or you can do, you know, where do you want to click first, or you can get them to, um, recall what was on the image. And so, We've used that by, for example, taking snapshots of our hero, showing it to people and then asking them, what did we just show you? And then you can see what they recall, because ultimately people have an attention span of six to eight seconds or so. If you're trying to show them too much, um, you're not showing anything. So by doing those tests, we've we've uncovered a lot of things qualitatively uh, without the need for A-B testing. Um, so that's another one. and. Finally, I would say, I, I think I would pref I always prefer iterative design over complete redesigns all the time, just to make sure, you know, if you have something that is working, uh, it's really, really risky to start from scratch with it. <laughs> so final question from, from me, Dan, is like, uh, I guess, what, what's your mindset now compared to when you started with Misa, like in your role, is it, uh, you know, things like delegation? Um, you know, focusing more of your time in the big picture. Uh, I'm just curious, like how, what your mindset is these days in your role. Yeah, um, it's my mindset is I feel like I have to reinvent myself every single year. So I think we're on revision number four, um, which nowadays I'm really just looking at um, enabling the team to do good work. And what that means in a startup is making sure they are clear on what we're doing. Things change so quickly. And now with, you know, multiple departments and you start to see a little bit of silos. So just making sure that the team has all the information that they need to execute. Because if they don't know, then it's really hard to execute on things if they don't know what's coming down the pipeline or what's important, for example. Um, so that's a big part of my focus. And then as well, just looking at the next big uh, growth lever and over the years the minimum size requirement for each lever is just getting bigger as we get bigger as a company so where i used to think you know what's the marketing tactic that's going to bring in the next fifty thousand dollars now it's okay what's the next channel or big move that's going to bring in the next million dollars and so 
that's been an adjustment for sure. So I'm trying to make fewer decisions of higher impact and look six to six months to three years ahead now. And how are you going about that, that type of uh, longer term planning? I, what I find extremely useful actually is just um, modeling out some scenarios. Um, and what, what that does is it just shows you um, what is required to move the needle. And so a lot of ideas, for example, when you then, you know, put in the assumptions, for example, I assume this will get us 10% more repeat customers or something like that. And you model that a lot of them are actually weeded out and not um, significant enough to move the needle. And so you end up with a set of smaller uh, or pool of ideas that you then need to do a lot of due diligence in. So, um, for example, currently exploring taking uh, our products to Australia and New Zealand um, and working with a, a market research firm over there to really explore how many people have these heating systems and how is the market different? What are the nuances? What could a, uh, a marketing mix look like over there? And so it's bigger items like that, as well as, you know, how can we work with utilities? How can we get more rebates? Um, yeah, so fewer fewer ideas and more more homework. <laughs> with bigger stakes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As they say, that's that's why they pay us the big dollars. Right? <laughs> cool. Well, Dan, uh, we've got one minute left, so um, I, I know you're busy. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. It was fun. Awesome, man. Great meeting you, and uh, all the best, I guess, in the in the days ahead. Thank you. All right. Have a good one.